This morning we're going to pick up in 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 8. But before we do, I want to give you a little bit of review, a little bit of background. I like to do that from time to time so we can keep everything in context. As Peter begins to write this letter, he's reminding his readers, remember they're, they're being persecuted this time, he's reminding his readers of a few very important things. He told them back in chapter 1, you were elect by God and your election was for a purpose. It was so that you could be sanctified, so that you could be set apart, so that you could be obedient and sprinkled with the blood of Jesus Christ. He told them you have a salvation that can never be taken away from you. He said you have a living hope which comes through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. It's a hope that is alive and it can't be removed. It can't be taken away. It it might be something you forget to remember, but the hope remains. It's not going to be dashed by the crashing down of the stock market. He said you have an inheritance in heaven. Again, not affected by the financial economy of this world and your inheritance in heaven, the things that you've done that count for eternity, they will be there forever. They will not fall or diminish. He said you have a salvation that's secure because it's kept in the power of God. It's not relying upon you. It's not based on your ability, your strength, or your righteousness. It's based on what Christ did for you. But he also told them you'll face persecution. You'll face difficulty. You'll face hardship. Life's not always going to be easy, and many of them were already scattered as he writes this letter. But even in this persecution or difficulty, he said this salvation that you get to carry with you through the hard times, this is the salvation that all of the prophets of the Old Testament wrote about. It's what they wanted to see. It's what they never got to enjoy. Do you realize all of the Old Testament prophets, prophets never got to walk a day in grace? They never got to turn the pages of the New Testament. Yes, there'll be persecution. Yes, there'll be difficulty. Yes, there'll be hardship. But there's something greater living within us. Because this salvation is great, Peter also gave them some commands earlier on. He said, gird up the loins of your mind. He said, be sober and to rest your hope fully upon the grace that is to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Even in the midst of suffering, even in the midst of persecution. But he also told him to lay aside a few things. He said, lay aside malice, all deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and evil speaking. You see, this church that he's writing to was about to be persecuted. It was in the midst of being persecuted. And while many of us don't really know anything about, we've never felt, we've never endured the persecution that the first century church faced, the truths that Peter teaches to them are the same truths that we hold to dearly when we go through difficulty when we go through suffering. The same thing that will endure and keep someone up through persecution where they're fearing for their life are the same things that will hold you up when you're facing a difficulty or a difficult season in your life or a difficult day or a difficult moment or a difficult time. Peter encouraged the Christians to submit to the government on which they were under, and that was quite a statement considering Nero was in power in Rome. Christian slaves were told to submit to their masters, Christian wives to their husbands, and he even gave husbands instructions on how to care for their wives. Remember, that was unprecedented at that time. Back in that day, the women didn't have value, and yet Peter is telling them through the, through the power of the Holy Spirit, there is a certain way that I want you to care for your wives. You don't treat them. They're not property. They're my children, and I want you to treat them as such. And now we come to verse 8 of chapter 3. So if you would, just follow along. As we're going to begin there this morning, I'll pick up and just follow along, and I'll pick up and give you a little commentary on it. So chapter 3, verse 8 of 1 Peter. Finally, all of you, be of one mind. 
having compassion for one another. Love as brothers. Be tender-hearted. Be courteous. Not returning evil for evil or reviling for reviling. But on the contrary, blessing. Knowing that you were called to this, that you may inherit a blessing. When Peter says finally, he's beginning to wrap things up. He's beginning to wrap up his line of thinking here. It's not the end of his letter, but he's wrapping up this portion, if you will. It's the end of his thought. And notice he turns his attention to all of his readers. Previously, he'd addressed uh, Christians under government. He'd addressed wives. He'd addressed husbands. He'd addressed slaves. And now he turns his attention to all of his readers. And he says, all of you, I think that would include us, all of you, all of us, be of one mind be of one mind now when i hear this it presents a problem for some people including myself at times because here's the problem most of us are fine with being at one mind as long as you think like i do if it's my mind you have then we're okay if i have your mind we're okay but if i think something different than you then we're not okay that becomes a problem sometimes Peter is not saying that everybody has to think like you do. He's not saying that everyone has to think like he does. Peter's telling his readers to have the mind of Christ. As Christians, there are certain things that we are to be focused on. There are certain things that our mind is to be set on. And as a body of believers, whether it's Calvary Chapel Cumberland or it extends to the many other brothers and sisters we have in Christ outside of this building, our focus, our mind of Christ, the things that are at the forefront of our thoughts should be the same. In 1 Corinthians 2.16, Paul wrote, For who has known the mind of the Lord that he may instruct him, but we have the mind of Christ. Literally, Peter's telling his readers and us, this is what it means to be like-minded. To be like-minded. We might have different opinions, we might have different things that we're interested in, but there's things in Christianity that we can focus on, even in the midst of persecution. Remember, this letter is going out to a group who's been scattered throughout the different cities as a result of the persecution. And even in the midst of persecution, even in the midst of our suffering, We can be like-minded. We can set our mind on these same things. Let me be clear. It doesn't mean that we all have to be the same. doesn't mean that we're the same person. doesn't mean that we're clones of one another. God has built both unity and diversity among his people. We're going to be different. Not everyone will be like you, and that's a good thing. And I didn't mean to offend you. I'm not saying it in a bad way. But if we were all like any one of us, that would be a bad thing. The things the Lord has put into each one of us are for the things that he wants to accomplish through each one of us. And he's made us with those things built into us. But although we're not exactly alike, it's possible for us to think like and to be like Christ. And that's what he's talking about here, to be of one mind. One commentator wrote it this way. I thought it was pretty cool. He said, the church should be like a good choir. Each one sings with his own voice, and some people sing different parts, but everyone sings to the same music and in harmony with one another. What a great description. Have you ever heard a bad choir sing? Oh, it's terrible. By the way, you guys did great this morning. But a bad choir, but a good choir, it's glorious. And that's the way the church should operate. In being like-minded, there are certain Christian virtues that Peter mentions here that should be evident in our life. 
These are things that we should be striving for. These are things that should be on display in our life. And Peter lists them there. What did he say? He said, having compassion for one another. He said, loving one another as brothers. He said, being tenderhearted, being courteous, not returning evil for evil or reviling for reviling. Instead, we should bless one another. Now, we're going to look at each of these this morning. And the phrase there, having compassion for one another. Having compassion for one another. Some of us are naturally more compassionate than others. But that phrase is kind of interesting, and I learned some things about it. It's made up of a single Greek word that means sympathy. Sympathy. Having sympathy for one another. But when you dig a little bit deeper, that single Greek word for sympathy is made up by joining two other words together. And those two other words are to feel And the second one is with, to feel with. Literally, it means to feel with. I'm feeling with you what you're feeling. You're feeling with me what I'm feeling. But here's the catch. When we hear the word sympathy in our English language, or we hear the word compassion, we feel like I have to uh, mourn with someone. I have to feel bad for someone. I have to feel, you know, like they're suffering difficulty or loss. I have to feel the way that they're feeling. But based on the Greek language, that's only part of the word that's used here. You see, the intention is that we as Christians feel what others are feeling, whether that's in joy or whether that's in hardship or difficulty. Whether we're we're rejoicing with someone in joy, that's the word that he's using here for compassion, or whether we're mourning with someone in hardship, same word, same thing. Having compassion on one another means I can rejoice with my fellow believer, with with them when they're blessed by the Lord. If you played the lottery and won the billion dollar thing, I can rejoice and be happy with you that. I can be happy for you on that. I don't, have, I don't want any money from you. That's great if you got it, you know. I didn't even buy a ticket. I don't really care. I don't know what I would do with all that. But I have no problem rejoicing with someone who's rejoicing. On the other hand, personally, I have a little hard time with the mourning thing. I, I, that's, if personally, that's where my, my difficulty comes in. But sometimes you know that it can be harder to rejoice with someone that's being blessed by the Lord than it can be to mourn with someone who's going through a difficulty. Why? Why would that be? Why would someone have hard, a hard time rejoicing with someone? Because you feel like, I want that. How come they're getting blessed? Wait a minute, how come I'm, I'm dealing with illness and sickness and they're, and they're healthy? How come, how come I'm not, how come her husband or, or his wife or how come their family and my family, how come, you, you see how we can get that way? And we, we, can, we can hinder ourselves because we can't rejoice with those that are rejoicing. You might be very good at mourning with someone. Because I'm very good at that, you might say. But I I can't help, I'm not good at rejoicing with somebody. Do you know what keeps you from having compassion? Do you want to know what it is? If you can't rejoice with those who are blessed, it's probably jealousy and selfishness. Because you want what they have and you don't think any good God would not give it to you. At the same time, same time, and it works this way, if you have trouble mourning with those who are mourning, do you know what the problem is? It's a little bit of selfishness because you really don't care. You really don't, you're, you're, you're sorry for them and you wish they didn't have to do it, but you don't come alongside and you don't feel the way that they're feeling. And I understand that there's some things that you can only understand when you've endured them. But it doesn't mean as Christians that we can't mourn with someone. It doesn't mean that I can't be hurt with someone or sad with someone or, or, or I, can, I can come alongside of someone, enjoy those things, or maybe not enjoy them, but I can be there for them. But Peter also instructs his readers there, to love one another as brothers. Now, I got to confess, as a guy, I don't like these kind of words. 
I'd rather like, you know, can we have a wrestling match? Can we fight it out? Can we, can we do something more masculine perhaps? Do I, but I want to I share something with you. Peter's not talking about agape love. The word there is not agape, it's Philadelphia, which comes phileo. It's, it's not this agape love that we read about in the scriptures that the Holy Spirit births in us, where the fruit of the Spirit, one of the fruits of the Spirit is love. That's the agape love. Peter here says, no, our, as brothers and sisters in Christ, we should love one another, which means a brotherly love. And it means we have to have an affection, a fondness. There has to be a bond between believers in a church that, exists, that doesn't exist between someone who's not a believer. Now, if you have a brother or sister, and I'm not talking Christ, I'm talking a literal brother or sister, you know there's a closeness that happens there. You might fight, don't you? Do brothers and sisters fight? Well, they do in my house. Maybe I'm the only one. But at the same time, it's okay if they're fighting, but don't you dare stick your nose into the family business because you're not part of the family. We can say whatever we want about each other, and we can say things and, and do things and call each other things, and, and it can even get violent sometimes. But don't you, the moment, you could have two brothers fighting, someone tries to break up, the two brothers gang up on the one trying to break it up. <laughs> that, that, that's what he's talking about. That's the brotherly love that he's talking about. There should be a bond within Christianity among Christians, not only in our church, but in, in, in the entire body of Christ, where we're looking out for each other. We're not always going to get along. We already know that. There's going to be difficulty. There's going to be hardship. There's going to be fighting. There's going to be those things. Let us handle that the way the Bible gives us. But at the same time, don't stick your nose in on the outside because we're the body of Christ. Do you have that bond or that fellowship with people in the body of Christ? Hopefully you've taken time to build that. Hopefully you've gotten to know people like that. Notice Jesus didn't command us to like our brothers or our sisters in Christ. He commanded us to love them. Love them. And I'm convinced once you start to love them, you'll automatically like them. But it's a choice you get to make. Is there a fondness in your life for other believers? Is there a certain fellowship that happens? A koinonia, they would call it fellowship. There should be a bond that you have with believers. Why? Because you're Christians. Christ is the common thread that brings you together. A church should be made up of all different kinds of people. There should be people that you have as friends in the body of Christ that you would look at and go, we would have nothing in common outside of Christ. But yet we can come together on Sundays or on Thursdays or on Wednesdays and we can worship and we can study the scriptures together and that becomes our common bond. That's what links us together. It happens in many different, there's, there's all kinds of things that, you know, in, in the police world, there's a bonding that happens because you're police officers. I'm sure the same thing happens in the military world. There's certain bonding that happens and, and there should be the same thing happens in the church. There should be a bonding that happens for each other. The church should be made up of a group of diverse individuals, both in economic, you know, socioeconomic with wealth, also in, in, uh, in race. There should be a diversity that happens. It should be representative of a community. It shouldn't always be one kind of person. It shouldn't be all wealthy people or all poor people or all middle class people. It should be a stretch. There should be many different people that are representing it. With all of us come together because we have Christ in common to worship the Lord. Isn't it great to gather here on a Sunday morning and worship Jesus and sing songs that remind us of who he is, where he is, what he's done for us? What a blessing that is. Peter also encouraged his readers. What did he say there? He said to be tender-hearted. And again, I don't, that's, that's not a guy word. I don't, I, don't, I don't want someone saying, oh, you're so tender-hearted. I would, I would sort of take offense to that. But here's what you need to know. The opposite of a tender heart is a calloused heart or a hard heart. And during this time in history, as with many others, 
Both man, when I say man's heart, I mean men and women's hearts were hard. Christians were being persecuted by being burned alive. Only a hard heart can do that. Christians were being thrown to the lions. Only a hard heart can do that. The Romans had perfected crucifixion, and the longest crucifixion on record, I believe, was 15 days. Hard hearts, violence. How does that happen? Their society was violent, and ours is becoming more and more violent. They become desensitized. How do you become desensitized? You harden your heart. You become a calloused heart. You become harder and harder and harder. And we can look around and go, oh, it's video games. Oh, it's police. We can blame it on any kind of thing. But as Christians, Peter's telling us, don't harden your heart. Don't become desensitized to it. As Christians, we're supposed to have, he says, tender hearts. And it doesn't mean that we have to be weak. And he didn't say that we have to be emotional. That's not the definition of a, of a tender heart. A tender heart is a pliable and impressionable heart that seeks to minister and help others. You don't have to, you know, give a, a, a tender heart doesn't mean I have to hug everybody. A tender heart means I want to help you. I want to serve you. I want to come alongside of you. How can I help you? You know, don't mistake, uh, you know, affection for a tender heart. Just because someone gives you a hug, they might stick a knife in your back. It's not the same thing. A tender heart says, I want to come help you. It's the tender heart of Christianity that began producing hospitals. It's the tender heart of Christians that began homes for the elderly and, and orphanages. It's the tender heart of Christianity that starts charities of all kinds. Do you realize as Peter gave this command, it's gone forth? Can you imagine if Christian charities and relief organizations cease to exist? Think about that just for a moment. If all of the Christian relief organizations, all of a sudden they're gone. No more. They're gone. Who would do it? Who would do it? Samaritan's Purse does. Who would do what World Vision does? Who would do what all of these, not only on our, in our country, but globally, who would do what the Christians are doing? A couple weeks ago, I was in North Carolina, serving down there with Samaritan's Purse in, in relief for the hurricane. And I, 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 I need to tell you this, I didn't see a single Muslim relief organization. I didn't see a single Buddhist organization. I'm not saying they weren't there, but I did see at least two three other Christian organizations that were doing exactly what we were doing. I'm not saying they weren't there, but I didn't see them. And I'm not saying they don't exist, but I do believe Christian relief organizations are much larger, they respond more often, and they're much better funded by the churches and by the Christians. If they did not exist, many, many people would be left stuck in their tragedy longer. But what happens? Peter, the Lord says, be tenderhearted through Peter. What do we do? We become tenderhearted. We reach out. Why do we reach out? Because we want to help. Why do we want to help? Because we want to help them physically. But then what happens with the Christian organizations? It's not about clearing trees. The gospel comes in. The gospel comes in. I got to tell you, I was so blessed when we were down there. My, my biggest concern was Samaritan's Purse, and I'd never worked with them before, was the fact that they would be too humanitarian and not enough evangelical, which means they'd be all about fixing the problem, but not enough about Christ. And I, that was completely wrong. They were completely evangelical, yet completely humanitarian. Each place we went, each home we pulled up into, the first thing we did was gather and pray with the homeowner. We began, to, we began each job with prayer. And before we left each job, that homeowner received a Billy Graham study Bible. And each one of us that worked on that job signed that Bible and wrote a little personal letter or a scripture to the homeowner. And while we were there working, a chaplain would always come to every job and share Christ with them. Every job. And it wasn't a five-minute, it wasn't drive-by evangelism. I mean, the chaplain might stay for hours if necessary. Or the neighbors or whoever, whoever he, he could. 
After sharing Christ, when we were done, we presented them with this Bible and we got to pray with them again. You know, what a blessing that is. What if that kind of stuff wasn't being done? It's a tender heart that says, I want to help you in your time of need, but I also want to share with you the hope that lies within me. Why, I'm, why are you doing what you're doing? To glorify the Lord, because I know you need help and I want to share this with you. I got the blessing. I walked into a, I don't know, it was like a 7-Eleven, like a gas station. I got gas. I walked into 7-Eleven. I was wearing the orange Samaritan's purse shirt, you know, and I had someone stop me. Literally, he said, can I talk to you? And I said, sure. I'm thinking, oh no, he's going to ask me questions I don't know the answer to. And all he said was, I want to thank you and everybody that's come down here to help us. We couldn't have recovered as quickly as we have without all of you, all of, and he said, you Christian organizations. I thought, wow, what a blessing to be. The community knows that the Christians are reaching out. If it wasn't there, well, who would be doing it? You see, a tender heart is produces that kind of work in someone. It's not just feeling bad for someone or not being soft or emotional. Next, Peter tells the Christians, he says the Christian readers there to be courteous. You need to be courteous. And he's not talking about being polite. He's not talking about opening doors or things like that. The Greek word should better be or could better be translated, be humble-minded. Be humble-minded. It means to have a modest opinion of yourself. To have a humble heart, a humble mind. How do you think of yourself? Do you think of yourself too highly? And when it comes to defining humility, I like C.S. Lewis's definition the best. He said this, Humility is not thinking less of yourself, it's thinking of yourself less. Humility is not thinking you're no good, I'm, no, I'm not worth it, I can't do it. It's simply thinking of someone else before you. Their needs, their whatever, how can I help someone else? It becomes thinking less, not thinking I, I'm, I'm lower, I'm just not thinking about myself at all. I'm putting other people in front. Peter continues there and he tells us not to return evil for evil or reviling for reviling you know the greatest challenge to our love for one another that he's talking about comes when you're offended and when you're wronged when your husband or your wife someone in church has wronged you what's your natural reaction you want to strike back don't you you're going to say that about me wait till you hear what i say about you you're going to do that i'm going to do this you're going to do this i'm going to do that i'm not you're not getting away with that and when he talks about evil there, he's referring to when we're physically mistreated. Physically mistreated. Remember, these Christians that were receiving this letter, they were being physically persecuted. Some of their friends and relatives and family members were being martyred for their faith. That's what he's referring to, evil. When he talks about reviling, he, that word refers to when we're insulted, when we're slandered, or someone speaks about us falsely. Now that's more likely what we're going to hear in our country. Someone said something about me. They said this about me. They said that about me. What's your natural reaction? I'm not going to let you get away with that. I'm going to one-up you. I'm going to, I'm going to one-up them. That's not going to happen. But isn't that where family feuds come from? Where someone offends another one in the family, and then you have a family feud going on? Like the Hatfields and the McCoys for generations, maybe? It's like we can't get past it. You said something to offend me. I'm going to offend you. And it goes back and on, forth and forth. Isn't that the origin of racial wars? Someone can't get past what some other generation did to them? That we're, we're stuck on that? One group wrongs another, and the other group dedicates the rest of its existence to repaying that wrong or trying to make it better? Peter says, don't let this happen. Only the love of Jesus for our enemies can break that terrible cycle. If you're in a feud with somebody, give in. Don't worry. Get, get past it. 
get over it. It's not worth arguing about. If you're in the midst of the feud, think love, forgiveness, and blessing. You have an opportunity to be blessed by doing the godly thing. And rather than retaliating, look what Peter says there. He says in verse 9, to bless. Not returning evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, blessing. Knowing that you were called to this, that you may inherit a blessing. So rather than returning evil for evil, we must, we must remember the Lord has called us to this moment in time. Certainly there's consequences from sin. But if it's not a consequence for sin, the Lord has called you to this moment in time. And it's an opportunity for you to inherit an eternal blessing. Based on the way that you respond. When someone mistreats you, how are you going to respond? How are you going to do it? One commentator put it this way. He said, we love one another. But not only for the sake of Jesus, whose body we are members of. We love one another, but not only for the sake of our brother or sister for whom Jesus died. We love one another for our own sake. By blessing those who have wronged us, we will inherit a blessing. That's what it's telling you right there. If you can't love for the sake of Jesus, and you can't love for the sake of your brother, then do it for yourself. You're getting a blessing for it. You will inherit a blessing. What an amazing thought that is. It's unbelievable. Now Peter goes on and he quotes from Psalm chapter 34. He bolsters his statements that blessings come to those who turn away from evil and do good. Look at verse 10. For he who would love life and see good days. Here's the instructions. Let him refrain his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace. And pursue it, for the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are open to their prayers. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. We should love one another, love our enemies, and look what he said there, love life. We should love life. Just because there's news of impending persecution or just because you're going through a difficult time or just because life is hard at the moment, it shouldn't cause a believer to give up on life. It shouldn't say, oh, well, I just give up. Nobody loves me. Nobody cares. What may appear to be bad days to the world very well could be good days for a Christian. You have an opportunity to get blessed. You have a chance to get blessed in the difficulty. But there's some conditions, there's some circumstances he laid out there. Number one, we must deliberately decide to love life. That's your choice. You get to choose that. that that's a decision you get to make. It's an act of your will. It's an attitude of your faith that sees the best in every situation. It doesn't mean life won't be hard. But choose, no matter what it brings, this is what the Lord has allowed. Peter was not suggesting some kind of, you know, unrealistic or psychological gymnastics that wanted you to stick your head in the sand. He's not, this is not the power of positive thinking. This is just a, simply a choice I can make. He was urging his readers to take a positive approach to life and by faith, by faith, by your faith in the Lord, make the most of every situation. Number two, we, you, us, we must control our tongues. We must control our tongues. 
Many of your daily problems are a direct result of the words that come out of your mouth. And mine. I understand. I get it. It, it just sometimes you just, where's my filter, Lord? It just came right out, you know? I get it. I understand it. But do you realize that's a lot of our problems on what we say? Our communication, lack of communication, our nonverbal communication, because we can say a lot with a face, can't we? We can say all kinds of things with a finger, and we can say anything we want with just our expressions. Nonverbal communication is just as bad as verbal communication. Your words will produce problems in your marriage, in your family, your job, and even your church. And if anybody is aware of the problems their words can produce, it's Peter. He's been there, done that. Remember and pray Psalm 143, verse 3. If you don't know it, it's a good thing to know. It says this, Set a guard, O Lord, over my mouth. Keep watch over the door of my lips. Lord, help me to zip it, is what it is. Help me not to do it. James 3, if it's a problem for you, you can read some more on that on your own. We don't have time to go there this morning. But just like our words can do damage, they can also bring healing and restoration and encouragement. The words that come out of your mouth make a difference. Number three, he says there in the Psalms, we must do good and turn away from evil. Turn away from evil. Turn away. The idea of turning away from evil is not just avoiding it. It's not just not doing it, but the idea is to avoid evil because you despise it because you loathe it. It's not enough for us to avoid sin because sin is just wrong. We ought to avoid sin because we hate it. Do you realize the consequences of sin are always forthcoming? If you've ever made a mistake and it's brought forth great, grave consequences, you begin to hate that decision or that choice that you made. You hate it. And that's the idea is that we, we loathe it. We don't want anything to do with it. But here's the problem with that. Sometimes we find ourselves going, and I'm going to be perfectly honest, you, you might find yourself going, well, I don't really hate sin. I kind of like it. It's kind of fun. You know, I, I hate the fact that I can't do what I want to do. That, that's what I hate. How do I, how do I hate sin? Listen very carefully. I'm going to tell you how to learn to hate sin. It's, very, it's really rather simple. The better you know God, the more you will hate your sin. The better you, closer you are to him, the more, like, the more you will hate the things that pull you away from him. As you draw closer to him, and how do we do that? Through the study of his word, chapter by chapter, verse by verse, taking the truths of scripture, remembering them when I need them and applying them to my life. As we draw closer to him through the study of his word, we will get a better understanding of the source of our sin and the consequences of our sin. Consequences for sin are always coming. Do you know that? We talk about what comes out of our mouth, right? And you know the consequences generally immediately on that. It's, it's going to happen. You're going to make her mad. You're going to make him mad. You're going to offend somebody. It's going to happen. But sometimes there's these sins that we think no one knows about. They're tucked off in the background, and, and we, we'll, 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 nobody has to know about that. Just trust me when I tell you the consequences are coming. I don't know when. I don't know how, but God will. He's very patient. He'll wait for repentance, and he'll wait for you to turn. But it's only for a season. It's coming. He will, he will address it at some point. Number four, he says there that we should seek and pursue peace. Seek and pursue peace. Matthew 5, 9 says, Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. They shall be called sons of God. If you go out looking for a fight, do you know what you'll find? 
A fight. A fight. You'll find it. If you, if you decide, I'm going out looking for a fight, or I'm coming home tonight looking for a fight, you know what you're going to get? You're going to get a fight. You will. I, I sadly have to confess, in my younger days, before I was following Christ, I thought fighting was kind of fun. It was interesting. So we would go out drinking, and one thing led to another, and more often than not, we ended up in a fight. I'm just being honest. I went out looking for one. It's what I got. But I also learned... When you go out looking for peace, do you know what you'll find? Peace. You'll find peace. You'll, you'll find what you're looking for. Now, I, this is another one of those words that I have to explain to you. This doesn't mean that as Christians, we just make peace at all costs. Okay? This doesn't mean that everybody else is right and we're wrong. But we don't create problems because we must have our own way. We don't, we, we, we're able to let things go. We're able to let things roll off our back. We don't have to create problems. We don't have to always be easily offended. We must be willing to yield to others as long as it doesn't compromise our walk or our righteousness. We need to be easygoing, so to speak. Don't worry about it so much. I always find it funny when someone gets really offended by bad language. I was a police officer. I heard bad language all the time in my life. I don't hear it nearly as much now as I used to. But I never got offended by it. I, it was just, it was, I didn't need to use it, but I, I, oh, I bet I never. I bet you have. You know, I mean, <laughs> I mean, it's like, come on. What do you expect a non-believing world to look like? They're not going to act like Christians. You know, once they realize you're a Christian, they may change the way they speak a little bit. Great, but don't force them to. Share Christ with them through your actions, not through your judgments. However, I must also tell you that sometimes you reach a point where peace is not possible. Sometimes it's just not possible. But as much as it depends upon us, we should be seeking after peace. Remember, the recipients of this letter, Paul saying seek after peace, they're being martyred for their faith. They're being persecuted for their faith. I could hear their objections. But Paul, our enemies are trying to hurt us or trying to kill us. They're driving us from our homes. They're taking our businesses. They're separating our families. Peter would remind them there in verse 12. God's eyes are upon the people upon his people and his ears are open to your prayers you must trust god to protect and to provide for he alone can defeat your enemies he alone can defeat your enemies as christians we need to understand that god has our back you don't need to necessarily fight your own battles that doesn't mean stand there if someone tries to take your purse or your wallet after church you you can you can fight them to keep it if you need to that's okay you don't have to just give it to them but trust, when someone says something bad about you, you don't need to slash back at them. When your husband or your wife says something, it's, it's okay. Let, let God defend you. Let your righteousness, let the way you live, the way you act be okay. And since Peter quoted there from Psalm chapter 34, verse 12 through 15, I did this in the first service. So I'm going to do it in this one because I thought it was really good. I want you to turn with me to Psalm chapter 34. That's where he's quoting from. And I know that in a group like this, some of you maybe aren't experiencing the persecution that the recipients of this letter were experiencing, but I know that some of you are going through difficulty. I know that circumstances in life can be hard. And I, I want to read, and I'm going to do it rather quickly because we're short on time here. I'm going to read the entire psalm because I want you to know where it's at in your Bible. And I, want, and I believe the Lord will have something to say to you directly through it this morning as we cover it. I'm not going to stop and give too much commentary, but I'm going to 
read it for you. So just follow along. So I'm in Psalm chapter 34. I'm going to read all 22 verses. It says this. This is David writing when he was uh, pretending to be uh, insane around Abimelech who drove him away. He says this. I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. Whether things are good or bad, it means. My soul shall make its boast in the Lord. The humble shall hear of it and be glad. Oh, magnify the Lord with me and let us exalt his name together. Isn't that what we did this morning during worship? I sought the Lord and he heard me. He delivered me from all my fears. They looked to him and were radiant and their faces were not ashamed. The poor man cried out and the Lord heard him and saved him out of all his troubles. The angel of the Lord encamps all around those who fear him and delivers them. Underline that if you need to know the angel of the Lord's camping around you. Oh, taste and see the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who trusts in him. Oh, fear the Lord, you his saints. There is no want to those who fear him. The young lions lack and suffer hunger, but those who seek the Lord shall not lack any good thing. He might not give you what you want, but you're not lacking what's good for you. Come, you children, listen to me. I will teach you the fear of the Lord. That's the previous verse to what we just read. So I pulled those four things out of there. This is the previous verse. I'm going to teach you the fear of the Lord. Who is the man who desires life and loves, loves many days that he may see good? Keep your tongue from evil and your lips from speaking deceit. Depart from evil and do good. Seek peace and pursue it. The eyes of the Lord are on the righteous and his ears are open to their cry. The face of the Lord is against those who do evil to cut off the remembrance of them from the earth. The righteous cry out and the Lord hears and delivers them out of all their troubles. The Lord is near to those who have a broken heart and save such as have a contrite spirit. Many are the afflictions of the righteous. Yep, times are hard. But the Lord delivers him out of them all. He guards all his bones and not one of them is broken. Evil shall slay the wicked. And those who hate the righteous shall be condemned. The Lord redeems the soul of his servants. And none of those who trust in him shall be condemned. When you're suffering persecution, when you're in a difficult season, you need to be reminded the Lord is with you. And he's against those who don't know him. Be reminded of that. Although we want instant vindication, we can be sure that no matter what happens as we follow the Lord and we serve him, we have all that we need and all that's good for us. He's not withholding anything from us that would be good for us. He would only withhold something because we wouldn't be able to handle it or because it would be bad for us. The next time you're having a bad day and you hate life, read Psalm 34 and discover I have the opportunity to have a good day even if it's not going the way I planned it. Warren Wearsby said this, we'll close with this quote, a good day for the believer who loves life is not one in which he is pampered and sheltered, but one in which he experiences God's help and blessing because of life's problems and trials. It is a day in which he magnifies the Lord, 
experiences answers to prayer, tastes the goodness of God, and senses the nearness of God. May our definition of a good day and a good opportunity align with the scriptures. Let's pray. Father, we can't relate to the church of the first century and the persecution that they endured, but we can certainly relate to the effects of sin in our culture and our lives. And while none of us this morning are being persecuted for being here, that we know of, Lord, I know that many of us struggle in difficult seasons and times. And I pray that you would take your words this morning and you would implant them on our hearts. That we would go back and reread Psalm 34. That we would praise you at all times. That we would realize your love for us does not grow cold, but it just grows deeper and deeper. Lord, would you bring us to a place where we hate sin? May we not want anything to do with it if it's in our life. May we get away from it. And Lord, finally, would you help us be of one mind? Would you help us have compassion for one another, love for one another? Would you help us be tender-hearted and courteous, humble? Lord, may we not return evil for evil, but when that thought exists and that moment of emotion is unraveling, may you just calm us and quiet us. May you help us keep our mouths quiet. May we learn to listen more and say less. Lord, may the words that you've spoke this morning implant themselves in our hearts. May they make a change in our life. In Jesus' name, amen.